If you've decided that alcohol dependence is a problem for one of your clients, you may want them to become involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. But you may have a number of misconceptions about the nature of AA, and you may not know how to make a referral to that organization. We'll discuss all of this in today's podcast. Let's begin. Hi, I'm Bill Whitehead. In my work as a psychologist back in Texas, I frequently encountered clients that were struggling with addictions and would refer them to AA. Here in North Carolina, I serve on the board of an organization that provides support to the recovering community. Through both of these experiences, I've found that many clinicians have more misinformation about AA than actual information. So I want to present to you my top seven myths about Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's start with number one. Myth number one, AA is suspicious of, or perhaps even hostile to the process of psychotherapy and may discourage your client from continuing treatment with you. This is simply not true. There are many places in the AA literature that directly encourage people to get help for outside issues and support for recovery with the therapeutic community. Carl Jung was an advisor to one of the founders of AA back in the 1930s, and there's been an open friendliness between psychotherapy and recovery since that time. I do encourage all professionals who are working with clients involved at AA to get a working knowledge of the concepts behind their idea of recovery so that in their treatment, they don't interfere with the ongoing principles inherent in AA participation. Number two, since AA is anonymous, it must be difficult to find a meeting. Nothing could be further from the truth. All anyone has to do anywhere is go to aa.org on the internet, enter a zip code, and they'll find a meeting convenient to them. AA meetings are ubiquitous. There are dozens of meetings in large cities every day. There are meetings in the middle of the ocean on cruise ships every day. There are meetings in any nation on earth every day, many of them English speaking. All your client needs to do is type in aa.org into their web browser and they'll find a meeting convenient to them in short order. Number three, you already know what an AA meeting is like since you've seen them portrayed in films. Well, yes and no. Some films do portray a close approximation of what an AA meeting is like. Others are way off base. For example, in many films, you see a speaker meeting portrayed where someone is in front of the audience telling their story to a bunch of passive recipients. Those type of meetings do occur, but they're actually fairly rare. A much more common type of meeting is a discussion meeting in which each of the members uh, participates and gives their opinion on the topic at hand. Another way that meetings are portrayed in the media is that there is a facilitator or leader who may ask questions, give advice, or give prompts to other members who also participate. This is also false. There is no designated 
leader in an AA meeting, one person will usually start off by giving a topic, but everyone participates equally. Everyone talks about their own experiences and all members gain from each other equally. AA meetings do come in a variety of formats. As I mentioned, there are speaker meetings, there are discussion meetings, there are meetings exclusively for men or for women or for young people, uh, there are meetings that involve reviews of the literature. Some of the meetings are open, meaning that anyone is free to attend. Others are reserved solely for active AA members. In other words, a person who has acknowledged that they do have a problem with alcohol and are struggling to recover from alcoholism. If you want to find out what an AA meeting is like, you are free to attend an open AA meeting and find out for yourself. Myth number four. AA is a religious organization that is unlikely to appeal to agnostics or atheists. AA is not a religious organization. It does encourage a variety of spiritual principles but these are not aligned with any particular religion, and there is no doctrine of religion or any conception of God that is promoted or promulgated by AA. People are encouraged to develop some conception of a higher power so that they can fully participate in the working of steps, but this conception of a higher power can take many forms, many of which are comfortable for agnostics or atheists. For example, some members think of God as group of drunks. In other words, saying that perhaps the AA community knows more about recovery than they do personally. And this is a perfectly acceptable conception of God within the AA community. Myth number five, AA will help members control their drinking. You may be surprised to hear that that is not the case. AA, in fact, goes to great lengths to tell members that they have no control over their drinking, that their control has been lost and may not be regained. As they put it, once you're a pickle, you'll never be a cucumber again. Instead, they promote abdication of control to their higher power, which again might be just the group as a whole. You can also think of AA as standing for absolute abstinence. In AA meetings, the idea that an alcoholic will ever be able to control their drinking or drink like others is completely quashed. Myth number six. AA's emphasis on humility implies that members will shamefully confront their weaknesses as a part of the program. Humility is an interesting word and central concept to AA. As they put it though, humility isn't about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. Many people who have been active drinkers for years have lost their touch with the community, even those, curiously, who've been drinking in bars. They simply do not have relationship skills that have been eroded over the years. 
a part of the concept of humility is to become reinterested in fellow alcoholics. And this is encouraged by encouraging very frequent attendance at meetings. So in this context, humility means starting to care for others and become a part of a community once again. And it also means quashing any hubris that may have developed as a defense against shame. A central AA concept is that alcoholism is a disease. Some liken it to an allergy, in other words, an unusual reaction to a substance. This helps prevent unnecessary shame from being experienced by the members as they go through the process of recovery. As you may know, AA has 12 steps of recovery, and the fourth and the fifth step do involve confronting personal weaknesses, but this is done in the spirit of self-improvement, not in terms of discovering things to be ashamed of. Myth number seven, Al-Anon helps to coach family members on how to bring their loved ones into AA or get them to stop drinking. There are several sister organizations to AA, including Al-Anon. Al-Anon exists to help family members who do have a relative or loved one, perhaps a spouse, who is struggling with alcoholism. However, the goal is not to help the alcoholic to recover. The goal is to help the participant in Al-Anon themselves toward recovery. Oftentimes they have become isolated and addicted, as it were, to the process of helping, attempting to help, or hand-wringing about their inability to help the active alcoholic. The emphasis is on the person participating in Al-Anon, not on the alcoholic, to get them back into their own community, to have a peer group once again, to have a place for support, certainly, but not to focus on the alcoholic. So how would you go about encouraging a client of yours to attend AA? Well, they're probably going to be frightened by that prospect. I know anyone that I referred to AA was frightened by that prospect. And so telling them a little bit about what to expect may be quite helpful to them. Once they've located a meeting, they can go on their own, that's certainly encouraged, or they can arrange ahead of time to meet somebody there who will serve as their friend for the first meeting. If you, as a professional, contact a group, they may be willing to offer a support person for that first meeting, somebody who will meet them there at the meeting and help them to feel at home. But even if they go on their own, they're likely to find an extremely welcoming environment. They're likely to be surprised by the tone of meetings. Instead of being somber or religious or shameful, there's a very lighthearted spirit that's present in most AA meetings. Within the AA literature, there's a statement, we absolutely insist upon enjoying ourselves. And that's a feeling that does go through most AA meetings. Some people are quite relieved to find a group of peers who also identify themselves as alcoholics and who also readily acknowledge their struggles with it. 
many AA groups encourage 90 and 90. In other words, attending 90 AA meetings in the first 90 days of recovery. Though this seems like an impossible task, it is possible to skip a meeting and double up attending two the next day if you get behind. The idea is to very quickly have a person become immersed in this recovering community. It's probably best for them to attend a closed discussion meeting the first time, since it may be a bit confusing to see a speaker and not have a, an opportunity to participate themselves if they were to attend a speaker meeting the first time. Sometimes there are meetings designated as newcomer meetings, and this would be a great place for people to start. Wherever they start, there's likely to be an announcement at some point in the meeting asking if anyone is there for their very first AA meeting. So your client will be encouraged to raise their hand, walk up front, and receive what's called a starter chip, a silver coin that designates that they are willing to consider abstaining from alcohol for simply one 24-hour period. There's a social reason for going through this process of self-identification and receiving that chip. It's an indication to the group that they should encourage this person personally going up to them after the meeting and discussing the process of recovery with them. They're identifying themselves as a new member so that they can receive that warm welcome. Sometimes newcomers to AA are intimidated by the idea that they will have to share in their first meetings. Well, the fact is they don't have to. When it becomes their turn, they can simply pass, and this is completely permissible. Even old-timers sometimes pass if they have no contributions on a particular topic. There are several valid predictors of success in AA. Certainly, if somebody does attend those first 90 meetings in the first 90 days, their chances of success are greatly enhanced. Getting a sponsor early on, perhaps in the first few meetings, is another measure of success. The newcomer is encouraged to select a sponsor themselves based on perhaps perceived similarity or the fact that a person has volunteered to serve as a sponsor. The role of a sponsor is to assist the newcomer in going through the 12 steps one by one, a process that will likely take many weeks or months. A second function of a sponsor is to be a sounding board available during times of crisis or panic. The newcomer may be encouraged to call the sponsor once a day, and especially to call them whenever they feel a craving toward relapse. If you visit the webpage aa.org, you'll find a link there that gives a great deal more information to professionals about that organization. This podcast was brought to you by Therapy Appointment, a practice management system designed especially for psychotherapists. Therapy Appointment provides online scheduling, billing, insurance, charting, appointment reminders, teletherapy, HIPAA-compliant communication, and much more. Therapy Appointment. 
You provide the therapy, we provide the rest. More info at www.therapyappointment.com. If you have a suggestion for a future episode of this podcast, please email me at bill at therapyappointment.com. Thanks for listening. See you again next week.